Hello and welcome to the Sense of Place podcast. Now, given Christmas is around the corner, I thought it'd be really nice to do a bit of a Christmassy themed episode. So the topic we're going to be exploring today is the uncanny. This concept goes hand in hand with the sense of place, as well as the literary tradition of Christmas ghost stories. Now, I'm not going to go into any more detail than that, as I'll leave that to my conversation with today's guest, which is Richard V. Hurst. Richard is a writer and editor, and he's got a particular interest in short stories, ghost stories, and stories set in winter. And to quote his website, sad stories about lonely British people quietly having a terrible time. So there we go. Um, Books he's worked on include Writing the Uncanny, Bus Station Unbound, Plunge Hill, We Were Strangers, and The Night Visitors. Now, before we get into today's episode, I'll give you a brief rundown of some of the things me and Richard discuss. Firstly, we explore what the uncanny is. What does this term mean and where does this concept originate from? We then look at how the uncanny links to a sense of place in real life terms as well as in literature. We then get into the tradition of Christmas ghost stories and their relationships to the literary uncanny. Now, just a heads up, around the roughly just after the 23-minute mark, I lost my audio for some reason. I have no idea why. I did try and contact uh, Zencaster to recover it, Um, but unfortunately, I, I couldn't. So I've only got Richard's audio And because that happened, I obviously had to play around with the editing because you can't hear us having a conversation. But I'm hoping that the result has made it more of a cosy round the fire festive episode where you're listening to Richard sort of talk about the tradition of Christmas ghost stories. But just thought I'd let you know if you wonder why around that point in time that I've just vanished and there's um, some nice sort of festive crackling fire sound effects going on but anyway we'll crack on with the episode now and uh, I really hope you enjoy it and uh, wishing you uh, a Merry Christmas. Thank you for joining me Richard. Now we haven't ever discussed the uncanny on the podcast before but the concept of the uncanny goes hand in hand with the more eerie and uncomfortable side of sense of place So before we get into that, it would be really good if you could explain to the listeners what the uncanny is, where this concept originates from. So the uncanny um, is a a theory, I suppose, a a way of thinking of things that's been around for about 100 100 years. In 1919, Freud published a paper called The Uncanny, which developed um, a theory he had for a particular type of phenomena that he believed was present in everyday life that was uh, what he called the unheimlich, um, which is like heimlich in, in, in Germany means homely. So it's kind of the unhomely, the uh, the kind of repressed and secret and hidden uh, things that happen uh, during everyday occurrences. And his the examples he, he used were things like things that seem familiar, but perhaps aren't. So you talk about severed limbs or artificial limbs and um, doppelgangers um, mirrors, reflections, things like that, that are things that we're familiar with, but have something that presents as somehow unnatural. And Freud thought that that the response that we often have is, um, often a kind of fairly small response, but it is one of uh, fear or 
disgust or distress or incomprehension. Um, and he thought that this was all kind of rooted in childhood. Uh, but it's essentially that. It's essentially things that feel familiar, feel homely, feel heimlich, but there's something, there's a wrongness to them that can be hard to put your finger on. Um, so it's that essentially. Is there anything, you know, yourself, say like from childhood or something, is there anything that would give you an uncanny feeling? Because I know a classic one sort of it is ghosts or clowns or things like that, like childhood fears. Yeah, there's lots of that, which, are, you know, they're obviously something like a clown, for instance, it is a person who looks fun. But, you know, there is when you look at them, you can see that there's something that's just a wrongness to them. There's something I have, like there's, a, there's a, a, an office I go to work a couple of days a week. Um, and there's a, a cupboard where all the cleaning things are kept. And there's also like a uh, some overalls that are hanging on the back of the door. So whenever the door opens and I leave it open, I'll go into a room and come out again. And it will look like, the, from the corner of my eye at least, like there's someone standing there because their arms are outstretched, the legs are down to the ground. There's something on top of the peg that looks like a, a hat or something that looks like someone's facing downwards. And for a second, it looks like there's you know someone standing there. It looks like there's a human figure, mm. but it isn't. <laughs> it is not. It's, uh, it's just the, the composition of things. And the sudden shock of the presence that there's someone there in the room with you, and then the realization they're not, the the disconnect between those two thoughts opens up something inside your your head, uh, this kind of space that you just fill with your imagination, basically. That yeah, you know, you never kind of get a set answer on whether there is someone there or not. I used to do that a lot as a kid with the dressing gown on the back of the door <laughs> at night. You'd scare yourself. Yeah. And I think one for me actually is I mean I, I don't really get it with like clowns or anything, but um. If somebody opens their eyes and they're black, there's, or there's something wrong with their eyes and they don't look human, that really. I remember years ago there was a Doctor Who trailer on TV. I think it was like monks or something, and they opened their eyes and they were black, and that just gave me a really ugh, uneasy feeling. I think that's really one for me. <laughs> yeah, but it is. It's things you see like when you're a kid. There's always um, TV shows that are maybe slightly too old for you, or they have an element that just is a bit too frightening for you that you'll you'll watch and you'll see it and you'll be scared, but because you're a child and you don't quite understand it, it sticks in your head. And then whenever you see something or encounter something that resonates with that memory, it just provokes it and brings it all back again. Yeah. It's a sort of like, you know, like a mini trauma, I suppose, that we all carry with us. And you have these little instants regularly, you know, throughout the day, throughout your week. They're not really big enough to kind of have a problem with, if you see what I mean, or do anything about, but they're there and you carry them, carry them with you and um, meet them again as you move through the world. Yeah, it's interesting as you become an adult as well because you kind of have that rational side of you, don't you? But you still sort of triggers you. Have you have you seen that eighteen ninety nine? No, I haven't. No. Oh, that was a. You should look. That's very uncanny. When I watched that, very um, real dark evilness about the ship, the way they've done the lighting, the music slightly off. Uh, for me, that was a real, I don't know, it was just something about the claustrophobia of it, everything about it. Get, I'd give that a watch, actually. Mm. I think it's hard. It's harder to find as you get older. I, f I find it hard to, like, as someone who's interested in, you know, ghost stories, the uncanny, uh, you know, all that sort of stuff, I find it harder to provoke that reaction the older I get. But it Do is you? also something yeah. I kind of want to want to happen, you know, in a kind of um, weird and probably horrible way you know <laughs> yeah. I find myself wanting to kind of find things that elicit not necessarily like being scared and terrified of something because you can kind of get that from a you know a horror movie that's got lots of jump scares in it but trying to find something that really truly leaves you kind of unsettled and um 
just you know lodged, lodges in your head in that way is it's it's i find it harder and harder because i think the older you get the more comfortable you feel within the world as, as well it you're is. more rational aren't you and you get older yeah well. i think that is a good distinction what you just said there though like the uncanny that isn't being it's not like horror jump scares that is um more the uncomfortable isn't it it's not like oh someone's slushing their neck and it's it makes you or something makes you jump it is that um it's a very particular kind of more of an uncomfortable feeling than an outright scared yeah i think so because when you think about like you know they call it cattle prod cinema don't they it's just using jump scares and people appearing suddenly on screen you know Mm. anyone can do that really i mean i'm sure there's an art to it It's, it's I'm sure it's quite tricky to do, but I don't feel like it's particularly psychological in the way that some books or some uh, some movies I've seen or, you know, different things that I've encountered have left that kind of sense that is just uh, a wrongness that, that, that stays with you and you're trying to, in your head, puzzle it out in a, a bit of an unconscious way. You don't kind of sit there thinking about it and mulling it over and over, but it sort of plays away in the back of your head. And every now and again, it'll something will kind of pop up that reminds you about it, and you'll, you'll be conscious of how often you've thought about it. Mm. And trying to find things like that, trying to find you know movies or books or um, whatever there is out there that creates that response again is quite. I know it's quite difficult. Like Freud always said that this uncanny thing—it's not like a um, a set response that we all have. That it is rooted in, in everyone's individual childhoods. That when you're a child, the world is a confusing place that you don't understand, and you're you have other people doing things and that there's a system there that you're shut off from a bit in terms of how the world works and why it works in a certain way. And therefore surprising, horrible things can pop up and happen to you all the time when you're a kid. Mm. Um, so definitely, yeah, it's, 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 it's definitely like a, a thing that can be individual to everybody. Obviously this podcast is about sense of place. So we kind of understand, understand the concept of what the uncanny is now. So, would you be able to talk about that link with the uncanny and place, you know, what kind of places might evoke that feeling? Yeah. I mean, like I say, it's, it's, it's one of those things that is unique to people depending on their, um, their childhoods, their, uh, you know, their life experiences, their backgrounds and, and, and all that sort of stuff. I think in Britain, there's like a, there's a particular uncanny resonance. A lot of people have with the architecture that we live among. Like this is a, you know, a, place where there's lots of old houses there's lots of victorian buildings like i live in manchester where um like wg seabold described when he lived in manchester as living among the like the ruins of the past i think is how he phrased it uh and it is like that you kind of you 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 can wander around uh, a modern city in britain and you can see architecture that had a function for a different era so if you walk around manchester you can see that there's all these mill buildings that are now housing um you can see uh where slums used to be you can see uh, rows and rows of houses that used to be for uh people who worked in different factories um but they're all they're all it's all this existence of a culture that you live amongst that has, was built and developed and devised for a, a purpose or a function that just isn't there now and there's, so there's a bit of a disconnect between um the life that you're living, that this society you're 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 living within, that is uh, has its own needs and purposes and things it kind of requires from its environment, but kind of plonked on top of this mishmash of history. Um, so I often think that is kind of you know that's a uh, 
what you call like a like an entry level uncanny experience that I think everybody probably has to some degree, where you are just wandering around this semi living museum of history uh, that is just the, the places we live in. In like the uh, book I recently put together with um, uh, my friend Dan Coxon, it's called Writing the Uncanny, which is where we commissioned different writers to write some essays on writing uncanny fiction. And there's an essay in there by uh, uh, Nicholas Royal, who's a, a Manchester writer, and he's written about beaches, which had never really occurred to me before that they were uncanny places. But he describes them as being these kind of um, blank theatres for experience to, to play out, this kind of arena where very often it's kind of quite stark landscape where there is just sand or shingle or pebbles, the sea kind of churning away on one side and then the sky above you and you know perhaps the, the dunes or whatever else is on the other side. And um, it's just, it's, you know, the beach is a place where people will have childhood memories mostly in this country, will have uh, sense senses of what the sort of places like. Sometimes they may have had things happen to them that have left them like we say, you know, not traumatised, but they might have had experiences that they couldn't quite understand that they've carried with them into uh, into later uh, life. So, yeah, and I think the, the beach is quite an elemental place to be for all its childhood mm. associations. When you go and you see the sea kind of, you know, like I say, churning away, um, the tide coming in and out, the sand, which is just, you know, you're kind of there among the elements and the the history of the planet as it's been kind of grinding away stones into tiny fragments of sand is just quite a unsettling uh, experience to kind of to go through. You know, it's a kind of odd place to take children to think those thoughts, I suppose. But um, it's a place where we go for, for fun. <laughs> Beaches actually came up when I interviewed Ian Robwell about um, liminal places. He said that was a liminal place. And that made me also think, you know, there is, again, we were talking earlier, there's a link with hauntology with the uncanny and also probably a lot of liminal mm. spaces because they are obviously their transitional spaces, but a lot of them do have that eeriness to them. Yeah, and they are they are kind of, you know, they are liminal. They are not one or the other. It's, you know, it's where, it's where a, you know, it's where a nation ends. <laughs> it's where civilization turns into water, you know. So it's a, it's a, a strange place to be, to be to be thinking about it if you kind of go there and you think about what it is what you know what is a beach what does it mean to be on a beach what do what do beaches signify what do they mean to us then you know it does bring up all kinds of odd unsettling answers yeah i did have a period where when i was a kid like i i have positive memories of the beach but um you remember when there was that tsunami and then mm. i'd go to the beach and i'd just have dark thought like what if the water just gushed forward and there was a suit you know you could just I think that's the thing with the beach it could anything could happen it is natural you kind of think it's safe and fine yeah, but no yeah when you think about um like the the, the a hot topic at the moment is um people coming to this country using small boats and sometimes getting into trouble uh in the sea or um you know drowning uh, on the on the way and, and uh, but, you know but trying to get from one place to the beach and find a new life there you know and it's it's all like like I say it's all it, it's all very elemental and feels very kind of big existential events mm. that occur at the sea um, and it's odd that it's just a place that we can all go to and we can all stand there and you know think about that and and, and experience it another place uh, another 
aspect, I suppose, of the uncanny is like in fiction more than uh, reality, but you know, there is, there is a degree of it is uh, the idea of, you know, haunting itself of, of ghosts. Um, like there's very few in the world of like folklore and, um, you know, superstition and folk tales. There's, there's very few ghost stories that don't relate to a specific place. They're always, you know, a, a, a soul mm. or a spirit that is in some way linked to a particular place. If, if that's the country, like, you know, it could be outdoors, it could be a building. Um, it could be a section of a building, but it's always a, there's always a link between a place and the people who have been in that place in the past. It's generally, you know, there's there's someone who's been somewhere and they've died. The story goes, um, and that's where they, in some sense, still are. So usually, like the classic haunted house. Type yeah, and thing. I think I mean the thing about ghosts is until I don't know about two hundred years ago, for a lot of people, ghosts were as real as most other bits of their life the idea that you could be haunted or visited by a ghost or in some way they you could encounter them was just considered as real as as any other part of your life so it it feels kind of interesting to kind of look at the history of belief in ghosts and um think that you know you can see the kind of drop off as you get to the um turn of the century um, in the 1900s. but It was very popular in the Victorian period, wasn't it? This supernatural and... Yeah, there was a big boom then when um, spiritualism became a huge industry with people. I mean, it was a, I mean, that was kind of a scientific or like a semi-scientific kind of response to the world of ghosts was to try and turn it into a science, to try and... Can we, you know, it was, it was a question of can we figure out a way to communicate with the dead in a way that feels scientific... <laughs> I, I also think in the world of haunting and haunted houses, that the thinking again about Freud, those stories and those ideas, they're I think the where they all come from is the like the fears we all have. I think when we talk about ghosts and haunted houses, I don't think it's think people thinking about anything specific happening to them or their houses, but there is a the fear we all have about the the homes we inhabit or um that we that we visit that you know anxieties about intrusion or invasion um about what it means to live somewhere that a place is yours that is your house you know that security that we all want or we all have hopefully um is something that people worry about and i think the the world of haunting the world of ghost stories that lives in our heads i think that's where it comes from is um is this terror that we all have somewhere inside us of that sort of thing being either taken away or um, intruded on in some way. So I think I think there's a degree of um, psychological playing out with uh, how we how we talk about ghosts and haunting that is linked kind of directly to how we think like very directly about place about home. Mm, definitely. I mean, where did your interest in all this come from? Like you know, ghost stories, the uncanny. How did that start? I don't know. <laughs> I've, always like, I've always liked kind of the, you know, like I was always into spooky things when I was a kid. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Like spooky cartoons, spooky toys. There used to be um, <laughs> there used to be these yogurts called fiendish feet that were little monsters with uh, feet, the pots, little, little sort of uh, monsters with molded plastic feet. And I was completely obsessed with them. And uh, <laughs> I was just, uh, they were like something I kind of, yeah, I was just obsessed with them. Uh, and it, so it kind of came from that. And then just becoming, as I went to university and got older, becoming more 
uh, interested in literature, in, in uh, fiction, in books, but wanting to continue that in mm. some way. So I got more and more interested in uh, ghost stories, uncanny fiction, uh, strange fiction that doesn't kind of sit within any one genre, which has just turned into this lasting interest in um, the uncanny, in, in the ideas of haunting, the idea of the gothic. Um, like the gothic in literature is always the idea that the the past is never really truly over, and it's there's ways in which it can still intrude on the present and upend the present, which I think is really interesting, and I think is true to the lives we lead more than we would probably like to admit. You're right, it is definitely, isn't it? There's all like even with you say the sort of the buildings, the constant. Yeah. We're, we're always sort of provoking the past on now. We cut, we cling to the past, don't we? We like to think we're moving forward, but we kind of do and we kind of don't at the same time. Yeah. Like I was thinking about like, you know, like it's been very cold, obviously, because we're in the middle of winter um, and it's been snowing and there's been sub-zero temperatures and it's been absolutely freezing, which in Manchester is a problem because everybody lives in these drafty Victorian houses. Yeah. And if they, if we built more houses at certain points in more in the more recent past, this wouldn't have been a problem for a lot of people, but it is because that just didn't happen. But like, you know, that to me seems like a fairly um, neat example of how you've got this kind of emergence of history, just knocking the, the present into a different direction where suddenly people are having to, I don't know, fire up their boilers for longer than they thought they would and it costs them more money. And then the knock-on of that is they, I don't know, can't afford certain things in the future. So it's all, you know, it's all the the, the past is never something we can really disconnect from. It's not something we can ever escape. Given it is Christmas, we were going to talk about the link between Christmas ghost stories and the uncanny, and I know you're a big fan of that. Can you, you talk about this tradition and its links with the uncanny? I think ghost stories are probably the most lasting version of the literary uncanny like they're, 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 they were very had a very big popular heyday around the turn of the century in the uh, early 1900s the late uh, 19th century but they're still very popular now and they've kind of had this life of their own since they first kind of popped up as a little subgenre of their own um, and ghost stories at Christmas is uh, an old tradition it kind of it goes back to the time of M.R. James, who was the great ghost story writer who would, the story goes that every year or more or less every year, he would get all his colleagues, his students, um, his friends and gather them all together in his, uh, in his quarters. Um, and they would all be sat there chatting, drinking port, I imagine, uh, by candlelight. And then he'd quietly enter the room and he'd wander from candle to candle snuffing them out until there was only one candle remaining, which was the one by his armchair. He'd then sit down and read them the latest ghost story he composed. Um, I'm not sure how true that all is, but th there's, you know, there's, there's people who've, uh, who knew him who said that that's, that's something he did. Um, but it also, it goes back further than that. There was Charles Dickens used to be uh, an editor for a, um, a mag couple of magazines, literary magazines, and each year they would produce a Christmas ghost story. Very often he would write them. He wrote one called The Signalman, which is um, one that lots of people like. Uh, and A Christmas Carol, of course, is probably the best best known. Um, yeah, it's a famous one, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but it goes back like further than that. Like it's a it's a tradition that precedes all that sort of thing. Um, you can go back to 
18th century and uh, 17th century folk ballads. You can go back to um, Hamlet. You could go back to uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh. You go back to, I don't know, Pliny the Elder. There's always connections between descriptions of the supernatural and winter. Why do you think that is, though? Why do you think that's the time of year people like to be scared or sit around and tell stories? Well, the thing I always say is that I think ghost stories are one of the purest forms of storytelling we have. And because I think the way that it works, the way that people engage with it, the way it calls to them, is because if I if I was to tell someone, I'm going to read you a ghost story now, they'd in their head, they'd have an idea that there might be like a candle or a lamp. Um, mm. And we'd be sat there and, and tell them a story, which to a lot of people is very, feels very appealing. And I think it's because Christmas is the the celebration of light we have in the darkest part of the year. It's where we kind of turn on our lights, come together, share our warmth and our community, um, and banish whatever darkness is there. Um, but ghost stories is where we come together to, you know, share the light. Perhaps you know it feels like it has a connection to you know campfires of of uh, the pre written world where everyone would come together, hear the stories that people would tell about what they imagined lurked in the darkness outside of that patch of light, but also outside of that community. It makes people feel more cosy probably in a weird way because they're like sitting by the fire with a candle light all together and then, like you say, what's lurking out there, they're not out there. <laughs> they're, yeah, exactly, they're safe. Yeah. It's like when they're safe in their house. It's like when there's a kind of, you know, when there's like a, a, a storm and you'll you'll feel oddly very cozy in your house because you just know you're protected from it because you have your yeah you have like the best night's sleep yeah, <laughs> exactly, yeah. and i think it's the same with the same with ghost stories that you know people enjoy hearing them in the comfort of the the, the shared group of the um whoever they're with like a, i do ghost story reading events quite a lot and it's always a it's always great because people love to come sit and it, like you say it feels cozy but it's also a bit of an antidote to christmas it's a bit of a the opposite of what all Christmas is supposed to be. It's kind of dark. It's about death and misery and woe and terrible things happening to people and is just the opposite of everything else that's Christmas for people. Ghost stories had their heyday. They had a, they had a big moment at the turn of the century. Like I said, there was a big boom in spiritualism where the world of science and the world of superstition were suddenly bashing against each other. There was this, you know, this great development of uh, rational thought that had occurred, particularly in this country, this um, heritage that had been founded throughout the 1700s and the 1800s. And as it got further and further along, it became clear, I think, to a lot of people that the world of ghosts, the world of superstition required some kind of scientific explanation if people were going to take it seriously and the ghost stories dramatize that i don't know that conflict if you like i think they they, they do a good job of um of uh, of doing that and then i think as the 20th century begins it becomes harder and harder to engage with them i think for a lot of people you've got world war one for one thing and um you know the death on an enormous scale happening in a very real world sense for a lot of people turns the idea of a cosy story of ghosts coming back. It just feels very, I imagine it felt very flippant to audiences at the time. So it did, in some ways, it, it did then not necessarily die out, but definitely sort of faded into the background. 
and I think also the advent of the modern age, you know, like um, I think it's Ruth Rendell, there's a quote from her saying, um, the modern age has too much electric light for ghost stories to be effective in the way they want. Ghost stories, I feel like, were just the most popular, most visible, most tangible version of a type of fiction that has existed throughout the whole of literature. Like I said, you can go back to Hamlet, you can go back to um, Macbeth, you can go back to ancient texts and find very strange tales that involve the supernatural, that involve the dead returning, that involve malevolent spirits that involve haunted houses, you know, that they've been there for all this time. And it feels like the, the ghost story is just that substrata, if you like, of, um, of literature blooming out into the, into the open a lot more. But it also feels to me like that uncanny sense that those, that the ghost story stands for really conquered literature in the 20th century. You know, if I'm kind of getting uh, very literary about it, you can look at T.S. Eliot, The Wasteland. You can look at, um, you could look at Freud. You could look at uh, just the, the the general tone that literature took on in the 20th century, particularly um, after the First World War, was just a lot more interested in the aberrant, the inexplicable, the uh, the haunted mind. There was just a, there, there is just a lot more appetite that has been around in the last hundred years or so for what I think the uncanny really stands for, which I think is what ghost stories really do well. I actually have been involved in a, uh, a month-long project where I, I work um, a couple of days a week at a, a former library building in Manchester, which is now a, a community centre. Um, and I was commissioned by the charity that now runs it, along with a couple of other writers, to write a ghost story for Christmas that was based in some way in, on, on the building or inspired by it or the community or the local area. Um, and then we did some readings in the building, uh, leading the audience from one room to the next in a sort of circuit around the place. Um, so that was, that was great. Yeah, people really, really on board with it. Um, and it was a, just a great way to really engage people with this like wonderful, neglected, neglected historic building in a way that was you know, very concrete for them. The Christmas ghost story as a phenomena, I don't think has ever been and will ever be the like a big dominating part of Christmas. Like it's always been like a tiny sort of aspect of what Christmas is. It was so the, like in the 1970s, there was uh, the BBC would do uh, uh, a ghost story for Christmas not quite every year, but regularly throughout the 1970s, which was where they would do an, adap uh, an adaptation of an M.R. James story as a half hour or so drama. And it would have their own cult following that people really, really get into. And they, they've they've revived it recently with Mark Gatiss from uh, The League of Gentlemen doing them on um, BBC4, where he'll do just a, you know, a very brief and very unassuming and for the big Radio Times listings, very unintrusive adaptation of a, of a of a classic ghost story that the BBC will broadcast and it's got the, the world of Christmas ghost stories has you know people who are like me who are dedicated to it and follow it quite 
intensely and are quite aware of all the goings on within the world of uh, of that. But there is other people who will just pick it up and go with it when it when it presents itself to them. I'm a writer and an editor. Uh, I tend to focus on short fiction because I don't know why. I think there's, there's something about the short story that really, I mean, it really suits the uncanny. In a short story, you can have, you necessarily have to have gaps and ellipses in your writing. You have to have things that just don't happen because you haven't got the time or the page space to go into all the details. You have to engage with the reader's imagination and have jump cuts basically where something will happen in one scene the next scene may, might be months later and the reader has to do the work to figure out what's happened in the intervening uh, sections that aren't written for them so it works really well for that which that device can be very unsettling and is very good at making people feel uneasy so i like i like short fiction for that reason um and yeah i like so I, I write uncanny fiction i write ghost stories quite a lot I write some uncanny non-fiction based around um, places I've visited. Um, one of the most recent books I brought out was this Writing the Uncanny, um, a book of essays that I co-edited uh, with Dan Coxon, which is all about writing these sorts of stories. So there's a section on, uh, a general section on the uncanny, then there's a section on, I think we called it land and law. So it's all around places. Uh it's mainly British writers, so talking about different areas in the in the in the country, not necessarily specific geographic places, but different types of places like uh, beaches. We've got there's an essay by Gary Budden around um, more uh, urban areas, uh, and then someone else, uh, Claire Dean, writes about forests and how they relate to fairy tales. Um, and then there's a separate section that's all about writing ghost stories from different points of view, like how do you how do you imagine what a ghost like what's the what's the physics behind being a ghost? What why how do they how do they operate? Why do they work? Um, that sort of thing. I think it's a nice mix of quite practical essays on things you can do in writing, but also more personal reflections on what the uncanny is, what it means for different people, and why they feel like it speaks to them. Myself and uh, two writers, Jen Ashworth and Emma Unsworth, we run Curious Tales, which is uh, it's just us guys basically doing things. So we'll we've not done it for a while because we've we've we had we've had kids and other things to do. Um, we had went through a phase where we'd put together a, an anthology of uh, of ghost stories and we would go to different places and read them um, at Christmas. The event, like the reading events for ghost stories, is is oddly probably the most important part i think like ghost stories at christmas you know writing them people will buy them people will read them but the actual in-person storytelling is a really big aspect of it and people really enjoy it and respond to it really well we've done things like we've you know we've been to big buildings that are you know like lancaster castle we did an event with them or um uh, the Rialto Theatre in Brighton, like big, biggish sort of venues. But we've all, like the ones that I personally like the best is when we find ourselves in the back room of some pub in the middle of nowhere, full of people, and then we've got like a, a torch and all the lights are turned out and we have to read our ghost stories to people and we do it, people come, they get a bit scared and then everyone goes home. <laughs> and it, there's something about that that just feels very, I don't know, it has its own quality. Like whenever, whenever I've done these sorts of things, the, the, a lot of the people who come, a lot of the audience, are people who I don't think would ordinarily come to a literary reading event. 
if they saw one advertised. You know, like I think go like if you tell someone you're coming to hear some ghost stories at Christmas, it's it it te- it gives people a sense of something they respond to in a way that they kind of don't with a lot of other stuff. But it just it just I don't know. There's something about it that just that just connects with people a lot of the time. Not everybody, but the people who it does, it really does connect with. And they're not necessarily people who are interested in modern fiction or uh, literary events. But there's something about going to see some ghost stories being read that people really get on board with. So there we have it. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you'd like to check out any of Richard's work, you can go to Google Richard V. Hurst, which is H-I-R-S-T, and all his little bits will come up. For anything else Sense of Place podcast related, head over to senseofplacepod.com. Other than that, a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, and I will speak to you again soon.